actress Katherine Heigl, a passionate animal advocate who has saved over 16,000 dogs, says she's been seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. She believes there's a link between canine health and diet. After extensive research, she developed Superfood Complete, a dog food pack with over 30 wholesome ingredients, including superfoods beneficial for your furry friend. Superfood Complete isn't just about deliciousness, though dogs love the taste. It's about supporting overall well-being. In addition to providing a healthy option for your pet, Badlands Ranch, the maker of Superfood Complete, also supports the Jason DeBus Heigl Foundation, which helps rescue countless dogs and find them loving homes. Dogs across America are trying this food and loving it. Go to BadlandsRanch.com slash MC901 and order right now to get up to 50% off your regular priced order with a 90-day money-back guarantee. If you want your dog to experience all these incredible things, go to BadlandsRanch.com slash MC901 today. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Welcome to Stop the Killing. We have a special guest that if you are a long-time listener of Stop the Killing, you might recognize his sultry tones. It is Brandon Hall from Music City 911. And Brandon, you actually joined us back in season three on episode eight. If the listeners want to go back and hear it, it was a brilliant episode. It was called 911, What's Your Emergency? But do you just <laughs> want to give us a little bit of an introduction about, you know, for the listeners who you are and how come you've got yourself a, a lovely podcast as well? Yeah, I'm, I'm Brandon Hall. I am a current dispatcher with the Metro Nashville Department of Emergency Communications, and I've started up Music City 911. I've been doing it for about three years now, and on the show, I play actual 911 calls to go over the details of the crime and kind of break down what the dispatcher's doing and what their role is during everything. Talking of Nashville, that's what's led us to this little call today because, you know, Brandon and I were actually side by side at CrimeCon in Las Vegas, which is how we met. It's crazy to me to think that, you know, these months later, here we are, and you're sending me a message saying there's been a shooting and I was in the office. I guess it's called something like the dispatch center, is it? Yeah, yeah, the dispatch center, yeah. So can you give us, I guess, the thumbnail of what went down on the 27th of March? I'll give it to you from the dispatcher's perspective because it's mm. going to be a little bit different than what the public has probably known, you know, because the public, they heard about it after it all happened. News didn't really get, uh, you know, any type of anything from it, probably until either the shooter was already down. But as far as dispatch goes, I was on a police radio at the time. I was handling a different part of town that it actually happened in. But when the 911 line started lighting up, we were like, okay, something's going on. And then I hear one of my fellow dispatchers say, oh, we've got a shots fired inside of a school. And when that happens, it gets changed to an active aggressor, active shooter, that type thing. And when the calls just keep coming in saying more shots fired and you know, there's, there's always the possibility of a false call. So the first time that we get a call about something like this, depending on the actual call taker that's taking it, it may or may not be something that we're like, okay, this is a kid calling in, you know, someone calling in just a joke or they're trying to get out of a test or something like that. 
we get multiple calls on this coming from different callers, almost all of them inside the school. We know it's real. And at this point, we've already dispatched. We've got units coming from all over the city, even my available units. My area was across town. At that point, they're still going because they don't know what role they're going to have to play. It can be anywhere from actually engaging the shooter to just a staging area thing or some of the wrap up. It, this was a huge incident. So as far as the police go, they got the call. They started en route. Once they got there on the scene, most people have seen the body cam footage. They didn't waste very much time to get inside and start clearing rooms. And once they got there and found out where the shooter was, they went straight for the shooter, went straight towards the gunfire and took the shooter out. It always surprises me that they release that footage. Why do they do that? It's quite chilling and graphic, obviously. So why yes. do they want the public to see that? Well, I think that it comes back to a long time ago when there was a lot of police shootings and there was question as to whether or not it was a valid shoot or not. It's like a justified shoot. And, you know, everybody would say, oh, suspect may not have had a gun or wasn't doing anything at all. And it was just a random police shooting. And then, you know, as soon as they started putting out these videos, which Nashville is actually very good about it, they will put out a police shooting video within the first probably, I don't know, 24 hours here recently anyway. And just to show what actually happened, that way the public won't make any type of false claims or have these odd notions that, of something that just you know, plainly didn't happen. So we've got the shooter down at this stage. What sort of time frame did it take from, say, the first calls coming in to the perpetrator being down? The first call that we had come in, we got it at 10, 13 in the morning. Police were on the scene. I believe it was around 10, 23. And by 10, 27, the shooter was down. It was a really fast thing. Of course, once they got there, arm themselves, make entry to the school. One of the administrators was outside and kind of gave a very brief rundown saying that they were on lockdown. Everybody should be in place that they, you know, that they wanted to. And once they got in and it's very disturbing, once you see the officers go up to the second floor, they had to step over, I think a couple of the victims on the way there. So it's, it's really hard. And at that point, it's it, kind of like the name of your podcast, stop the killing, stop the dying. That's the thing that they practice and reach for any type of active aggressor like this. Yeah. And Sarah, if I could just fill in a few pieces, the officers came prepared, right? They had their equipment. It's very clear that Nashville officers and the people who responded were trained in order to do this. And you can tell that from the video footage that was released. But you mentioned about, wow, they released that. You know, every state law and every organizational agency has its own rules and regulations on when and what gets released. And there isn't a national policy here, which there are in many other countries. And as Brandon said, you know, we moved from releasing nothing concerned about investigations to transparency. And a lot of states have sunshine laws that require that they release things immediately. Think back to the shooting in Pulse nightclub in Florida, where the 911 tapes were released immediately. And as Brandon just mentioned, you know, you can hear on one of the tapes, there's one here, they're talking about a person who's down, a person who's been shot. And, you know, if you're used to listening and seeing those kinds of tapes, you hear and see a lot of things, including what Brandon mentioned about the individuals at the school. A lot of businesses and schools don't necessarily have a crisis team that meets first responders. In my consulting business, I ask everyone to set up a crisis team that can meet first responders. They don't know the configuration of the school or the buildings that they're approaching. And you can see in the footage, 
somebody uses a key to open the door. That's an administrator who is at the door opening that door for law enforcement. Otherwise, there's no way for law enforcement to get through. So getting to that scene and then walking over bodies if you need to and running through the building together, even though there's a loud blaring fire alarm going on, that's part of a great law enforcement response to a terrible situation. What do you know about the school, Catherine? It's a little school, little Christian school, about 200 people attached to a church. And it's really a nice area. We see a lot of these shootings in suburban areas where people congregate. And this school is, like I said, 200 people. So two floors, not very big. Officers went in in a couple of teams. They were clearing rooms, clearing meaning that they're going into a room, making sure there's nobody there. And then they're advancing to the next space that's safe. The goal is everything behind them is pretty safe and everything in front of them is a threat. Can either of you speak to how the school reacted when they found out there was an active shooter in there? Oh, go ahead, Brandon. As to the uh, the actual school, what their policies are, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. But what I've read so far is their lockdown procedure probably actually saved a lot of people doing that. It's They um, practice three times a year. Yeah, least. exactly. It seemed as though, and you could see this with the officers when they were going through, they were checking doors and there were several doors that were locked. So that's a very good thing. I mean, if you think about it, the shooters going through the hallways may be doing the same exact thing. Could be going in and checking doors to see if they can get in and see if there are any students or teachers or any good target inside of a classroom or any type of door at all. So their lockdown probably did save lives. So the actual shooter herself, there was an initial video of her entering the school coming through. She blasted through one of the glass doors that apparently were locked. She just shot through the door, walked through it, walked into what looked like the the main office of the school. I'm not sure the positioning of all the victims where they were, except for the ones in the hallway. But I do know that the headmistress there, she was one of the victims. And I don't know if that may have happened there in the office or what, but you see the video of this woman just walking around and she's just very nonchalant about it. Like it's, it's kind of basic stuff for her. Like she's not even really given to heart of a thought to it. She's just there to kill people and that's all. Let's go back to the glass doors, Catherine. Yeah, because you know it's it's easy to get into any building if you're determined to to die, you're willing to do it. We can get into practically everywhere, right? Parliament and you know the White House. So I think you know that's the frustration right now. I hear a lot of people comment about access to the door. Oh, we need to harden the targets. We need to harden the targets. Actually, what we need to do is we have, you know, troubled people who have access to guns. And that's a challenge because we're looking for the small number of people who might be able to do this, but then have access to the weapons. So getting through the doorway, which is really what you asked about, these are glass doors. They were locked down. The building was clearly in a good practice. They'd locked all their doors down. Uh, this was an unusual shooter. This 28-year-old, and I know you said she, but my understanding is that I think the police chief misspoke initially when he was talking about this individual, that this is somebody who presents as a male, but was born a female. And in some transition that took place, you know, in this person's life at a certain point in the last X number of years. So I'll just say the shooter here. So the shooter did come through a glass door and blasted it out. That's one of three door breaches that I've seen. As Brandon mentioned, there were all those interior doors even that were locked. There's nothing more important than locked doors. It delays a shooter. 
and it delayed the shooter here. If there were other opportunities, you can tell this shooter was just plowing through the building, kind of looking for somebody to shoot. And you see a lot of empty hallways. They were absolutely locked down at that moment and hidden away. So the shooter is wandering gun up. A lot of times we find that the shooters practice in concept till they get to the building, even though I guess, I think that there were drawings of the building as part of the materials that they'll have that they'll be releasing. But also this person had gone to school there as a younger child, so knew the school configuration. And I know three school shootings where a door was breached, Red Lake up in Wisconsin, Sandy Hook in Connecticut, and then Covenant in Nashville, where doors were breached by shooters, which makes people say, well, maybe we need to have bulletproof exterior doors on schools. And those are available. I've talked to some of the companies that manufacture those. They're expensive. And people would say, so what? You know, we're saving lives. Brandon, you know, you are there in Nashville. This is your hometown. What's the feeling and the response been within the community? It has been just completely and totally overwhelming. Um, the way that everything went down, the sadness everyone's feeling, just heartbreak all over the place. And then they released the footage of the body cam. And then it was just an over, I mean, it, it incredible amount, absolutely incredible amount of people congratulating. I've been on, at work since then. There's not been a day that has passed by since then that there hasn't been me personally taking three or four phone calls each one of the days saying that the police did such a great job there. Brandon, that is so nice to hear because there has been some kind of troll criticism about, well, it took police a long time to get there and to take care of the shooter, you know, because they don't understand the job. So what was the feeling like in that dispatch center that night? Can you paint us an image? Yeah. So uh, for us at the the time that it all happened, I, I can't recall exactly how many people we had working the phones because we were actually a linear type system uh, for dispatch. So instead of the person taking the phone call and dispatching on the radio, we have either call takers or radio dispatchers just because each are so busy. And at the time, I think we had maybe around 12 or 15 people on the phone. And then our radio section, it has, I think about 14 radios total, including fire and some of the administrative type radios. But, you know, that first call comes in and everybody kind of sits up in their chair. And once the more calls start coming in, everybody starts grabbing their extra radio. So like I've got one radio for the time I was working the Hermitage precinct and I'm listening to the Midtown Hills precinct on the radio to see what's going on because I'm going to have officers going over there too. So I'm wanting to give everybody updates on my radio that might be going over there. And we, we didn't know uh, while we were listening to the radio, hearing the updates, seeing the updates in the call at the time, we weren't sure if they were victims or not. It, uh, it, it wasn't clear. So once the police department got on the scene and started sort of making announcements saying that, you know, oh, there's one down here, there's two more down here. And then you start hearing them saying they're taking fire. I would imagine that's probably the officers that were pulling up outside and the shooter was aiming down at their cars, which there's, I don't know if you've seen the pictures or not of the police car getting shot, but when all that's going on, everybody is just really on the edge of their seat wanting to know what's going to happen if the officers are going to be fine if how many victims there are and we're also trying to think and prepare if there's going to be just the shooter if there's no other victim or if there's going to be multiple victims and we're going to have to do a mass casualty incident it's yeah and multiple shooters exactly and there's 
secondary devices, something like that, that could have been planted somewhere along the way. You can't really tell until the entire school is completely cleared and you really find out if there was some sort of a motive behind it and if there was someone working with the shooter. So how long were you there that day? Do you stay extra shifts? Do people just not want to go home? I mean, that's kind of how it was for me at the FBI. You have to yeah. kind of send yourself home. Yeah, it's it's one of the things, though, for, with us. We have plenty of people that come in after for our next shift. At one point with us, with dispatch, the huge role is done. You know, we, we're playing cleanup and trying to make sure that the unit's in the right place, doing the right thing. And that's that's a lot of the other thing that people don't really think about are the behind-the-scenes type things that are not directly there at the school. We had a news media staging area. We had a secondary staging area for the children that were in the school. That way they could be talked to. And then a, another place past that that was a reunification point with their parents. And, and you had to cover the rest of the city. Yeah, exactly. So we had units that normally are broken up into sectors. They were going all over the city trying to answer calls. And, you know, it, it does deplete the resources for my sector in Hermitage. We went from having enough to work the day to several units that were actually on the shooting itself. And when you have that kind of depletion of units, the calls back up a little bit and something like a car that was stolen, you know, three days ago, whereas that might be dispatched relatively quickly, it's going to hold for a little bit now because they're having to deal with higher priority things. There was something similar that happened where this was years ago. We thought there was an active shooter inside of a mall here, and it was just a simple shooting inside of a mall. But we had, I think there was over a hundred phone calls from it, from people walking around the mall. And we thought it was going to be an active shooter. And in the middle of those hundred calls, people were still calling in for other stuff. You know, if they're shortness of breath, heart attack, things like that, they they still have to call for it. Love that you say it was just a simple mall shooting. <laughs> it's just like so. We're, if you're just well, listening, if you're just listening, I was watching Sarah uh, on video when you said it was just a shooting, and Sarah's eyes kind of rolled and her head went back a little bit. I know. I just also know Brandon as well, and I remember when we talked last time, Brandon had talked about. I think you called it like the pretzel moment in your job. Oh yeah. It's kind of the point in your career when you're in, I mean, really any type of first responder type thing where you've seen enough, you've heard enough that I won't say that you've lost your morals, but there's a, a piece of you that's kind of <laughs> gone away. And for me, it was when been there for maybe a year or two, I guess, something like that. And at that point, I was actually just a police only dispatcher. So I got hired by the police department and we had fire dispatch. It was upstairs. They did all their stuff separately. And what we would do is when we had a a phone call come in on 911. If they needed medical, we would transfer them to the fire department upstairs and we would sit back on mute and listen to see if the police were needed. If it was something like a simple heart attack or something like that, that that's fine. You know, we disconnect the phone call. There's nothing that the police need to, to go on. But if there's some sort of a crime involved with it, like a shooting, stabbing, something like that, then we'll go and we'll get the information after they get the paramedics started. For me, the moment that she's talking about is a woman had walked inside of her house, found her father passed away on the couch. I transferred her up to the fire department. I hit mute on my phone and I started listening to see if there was any type of foul play possibly involved, if it sounded like it was natural or not. And the whole time this woman is just sobbing her eyes out and I'm eating pretzels. Like it's, <laughs> it's just very yeah. regular. And because it is, I mean, it's, it's terrible to say it like that. We deal with death nearly every single day and yeah. You know, as far as like the simple shooting thing, 
we have a shooting somewhere in Nashville or anywhere else, really, nearly every single day. Most yeah. of the time it's drug or gang related or something like that. And, it, you know, I, I don't want anybody to be shot, but the people who are doing this for the most part are people who they kind of chose that lifestyle. They knew what they were getting into. This that happened in Nashville on Monday, that was not anything that anybody signed up for. Did you then find yourself reacting differently than you would on a normal work day? Because I know, you know, when we have spoken in the past, you've said you just can walk away at the end of the day and not know how it's going to unfold often. So you'll leave a call and still not know. But how did this case differ for you? Yeah, it, it wasn't that uh, I know that some some people, they were probably in tears. They were probably crying heavily uh, because of it. And I'm, I'm not a person like that, but you know, when I walked out of work, I was like, oh, I'm this, it's going to be heavy on my mind and everything. And I got home and I was actually going to start working on my next episode. And when I sat down, I started, I was just scatterbrained. I, I had so much mentally that was taken out of me that day. I just, I couldn't, couldn't finish up. And I've just decided to delay and, you know, just take a couple of days to sit back and get my thoughts straight about everything. Uh, it's, it's different for everybody though. We, we did have dispatchers that were, you know, just breaking down completely afterwards. And that's, that's one of the biggest things too. You deal with what's in front of you, right. When it's going on. And then afterwards, you know, you, you deal with it, how you, however you see fit. And that's, that's what a lot of them did. Mm, part of the job. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's part of the job, but you know, it's just, it's not a part of the job that everybody has. I think sometimes when you two are both in this role and you have been your entire careers, maybe you don't have that perspective that outside other people are just going to retail jobs that they can walk away from and it's not a heavy burden. Yeah. And it's the same with people that work in, you know, I've got friends that are GPs. They can't walk away because it's life and death. You know, you guys come with a bit of a superpower. If you don't serve and do what you do so well, then it has such massive consequences. And I just think it's such a burden to have as a job. And, you know, it's, it's an incredible thing that you do. I want to ask you, Catherine, what is unusual about this case and what is usual? Because, I mean, some people would say straight away, well, it's unusual because we've been told that it's a female shooter and that might mm -hmm. be the first kind of like, oh, what's going on there? So what can you tell us? So uh, it is unusual to have a female shooter, incredibly unusual. Most of our shooters are male. In this case, we have a female that we believe pr was presenting as male what does it matter if this person is transgender or cisgender? You know, it really doesn't matter. I can think of two transgender shooters, but in the world of shootings and shooters, it's not that particular characteristic that it's relevant to finding shooters, which is all about predictive analysis. When we're looking for shooters, even male or female is not something that we point to and say, oh yeah, if it's a man, that's definitely a shooter. So it's the characteristics of them, these individuals who have real or perceived grievances. And as Brandon said, we're going to get a lot more details about the writings. It's clear that this individual intended to commit suicide, suicide by cop. They know that because this person wrote things down and those will be released. I think there's probably some level of wanting to ensure that before they're released, certain things are redacted out of them. And when I say redacted, I mean like maybe personal information about somebody else. 
in, at this point, a lot of times people ask, well, what's the motivation? What's the motivation? And in some ways I still kind of fall back on the, you know, I don't care what the motivation is for the most part. It's a troubled person who had access to weapons and committed this horrific crime. And all of them are troubled and they have some sort of grievance and they act out on it. But then, you know, there's that commonality, what you pointed out, the shooter through the doorway, that's somebody who knew the school. And in most of these shootings, middle school shooters, high school shooters, they're generally students from the school. Elementary school shooters are generally somebody coming from the outside who has a grievance against somebody inside the building. So I think that may be part of what we might see. So um, can you just clarify, was this an elementary school or what sort of age groups are we talking were in this school? K through six, right, Brandon? Pre-K through six, Pre-K actually. Pre-K through six, three, four, five-year-olds okay. to sixth grade, which is like a 12-year-old before they go to some level of secondary school. Okay. So we're saying in this situation, you would class that as an elementary school and then you would expect them to see a shooter that perhaps had a grievance within the school itself. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. And and the chief, yeah, I mean, sadly, uh, yes. And the chief indicated that there would be more to come on the grievance. And I think there's a lot of speculation about it. I heard somebody say, oh, well, this is a hate crime because this is a transgender person attacking a Christian school. Okay, well, that's just all made up right now. You know, you're tying facts together. So let's find out. I think that one thing the chief said is the person didn't want to go to the school or didn't like having to go to the school. Well, you know, I went to Catholic schools and I didn't love going to church every week. So let's, you know, kind of wait and see, so to speak, because this is a 28-year-old shooter. Yeah, so it's this a long is somebody time to wait to have that grievance against a school, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Thing that's going on. Right. So I think that we'll get more facts and more details. And maybe, Brandon, I should stop and let you fill in, you know, or correct what I said. No, it's it's been spot on. Everything I've heard about the shooter and the school itself, it's it's right spot on with what you're saying. You know, one thing that we know, Sarah, is that there was pre-planning. Uh, there was drawings of the buildings or drawings of the area. There was surveillance done. And when the shooter came to the school, pulled right into the front parking lot, something that that the shooter was clearly very familiar with and knew to go to a side door to shoot through it, you know, didn't approach the front door of the building. So not surprising of the kind of conduct that we see advance work by a shooter. I don't think we've actually talked about who the victims were and how many people were injured. Brandon? Uh, yeah, there's six that were actually shot by the shooter. Uh, three nine-year-olds and then three people who work there, um, ages from 60 to 61 or 62, I believe. And then past that, there were none injured. And then, of course, the shooter himself. So a total of seven people dead, including the shooter. Catherine, what can you tell us about the lead up to the actual incident itself? Do we know anything about how it unfolded with the perpetrator? We don't. I think law enforcement has been very smart and circumspect to wait until they have all of the information. They continue to release information in press conferences as they gather the information. What we do as investigators all together, fire, police, emergency responders, whoever else is involved, is then we start working backwards. Who is the subject? Who is the killer? How did this person get to this location? And we build a calendar backwards. That's what we do in every investigation of this kind of shooting. And the police are still doing that. But once a shooter is down, then you want to be thoughtful and make sure you do it right. 
you don't rush pieces of information out because there's no value in that. Has there been anything that you've come across that you feel is leakage? These usual tells that we often talk about. Yeah, Brandon, do you want to speak to the former friend or the acquaintance of the shooter? Yeah, actually, that's something that I haven't seen a lot of people talk about, but I'm sure this is one of the things that they really should get ahead of. You know, I actually may have heard a a clip of the, the call where she called in and the dispatcher said correctly, we can't just send someone out to check this because there's no address. Most people think that dispatchers, police, we have some sort of a supercomputer that can ascertain the current location of every single person in the world right now the second. It just is not the case. If the timelines are correct, which I believe they are, I believe that the shooter actually got into the parking lot at 9.53 in the morning and started sending messages to a former, I believe it was a basketball teammate or some sort of a sports teammate saying that she was, you know, they were suicidal type messages. And that was at 9.57. And, you know, somewhere in there, the shooter went in and started shooting after that. But the problem that we have with it is the timing of all of it. You know, some people might say, oh, this could have been prevented. Not really. There was too small of a gap in their time-wise to make that happen. Yeah, I think the information, too, about why there's too small of a gap is the former teammate contacts her dad and says, hey, I I just got this weird message. And the dad says, call a crisis hotline for suicide. She calls a crisis hotline for suicide. They say, you need to call the police. You know, she calls the police. And by then the shooting's already underway. And as Brandon said, she doesn't know where this person is. And I think this really speaks to the urgency. When you hear something, my gosh, you have to report it right away. And, you know, Brandon, I wanted to ask you about this specifically. I had several people ask me in the media world this week about this particular thing. And they said, why did the dispatchers from the suicide hotline tell her to call non-emergency instead of 911 emergency? As to why they would say that, I'm not sure. But if I've read correctly, because I've just seen the one article on it talking about the friend calling, I believe she actually called our local sheriff's department first, and they may have actually transferred her over. I'm not sure about that, though. As far as the sheriff's department, there's a different role here in Nashville than it is with most other places. Usually a county sheriff, they handle law enforcement stuff. They go out just like police. In Nashville, it's not the same. They handle civil warrants, and they operate the jail system here. So if they get a call like that saying, oh, I've got a friend who's wanting to commit suicide or whatever, they're not able to handle that. They have no law enforcement abilities in that regard. So they would have to transfer it over. And I think that's what just happened. I think that it was transferred over. I'm not sure where the suicide hotline came in, but yeah, something like that. If it's a person saying they're going to kill themselves, no one should be called. Yeah, Yeah. that's absolutely my question is, should 911 be called? Yes. Uh, You know why I ask that is people are so hesitant to call 911. They don't want to bother 911. Some people, yes, but a lot of people know. If you can imagine this, uh, this is a scenario that a lot of us have talked about since this has happened. Can you imagine that you were trying to call 911 because there's someone walking through the hallways actively shooting people and you're calling 911 and you can't get through to 911 because someone's calling to report that their car was broken into overnight? That happens. That should never, ever happen. If you have your car broken into overnight, you don't know the suspect. They're not out there. There's no chance of seeing the suspect right then and there. Do not call 911 for that. Call non-emergency number every single time. You could be tying up a phone line that someone could come be calling in 
absolutely critical information about something like a, a mass shooter, their current location, how many victims there are. They could be standing over one of the children or the people that are shot and be able to give emergency medical aid, but they can't get through maybe because you're calling on the phone about this small minor thing that could be handled later. Let's go back to the two things that people always say, eh, it's the guns, we need to fix mental health. What can you tell us about both of those things really in this case, Catherine? Legally purchased guns. The shooter had purchased seven guns legally, 28 years old, and sold one of them, took three of them to the scene. Is that right, Brandon? Three, right? Yes. Took three of them to the scene. And Brandon, you can chime in here, but we have reports that law enforcement has said that there was some mental health care, but I don't think they've released anything that tells us really what that means, even though, as I indicated, a female that was presenting as male, no indication this person was taking hormone therapy. We just don't yeah. have the details yet. What can we take away from this? Is there any changes that you think are going to be made because of this? What's the hopes that you two both have individually? So maybe we can start with you, Brandon. You're there on the streets in Nashville. Do you think this is going to have any actionable change because of this new shooting? Yeah, absolutely. I, I believe so. And that's one of the reasons that our police response and dispatch as well, but overall our agencies in general did such a good job with this is because we have prepared for this. I can tell you that in Nashville now, and has been for the past several months, over a year, something like that, every single school in Nashville now, elementary school through high school, we have armed police officers in every single one of them now. The glass door, I think that's going to be changed for a lot of places. I think they're going to have to take that out and change that around just kind of overall security measures and, you know, have your teachers and students actually practice drills for this. I mean, I'm a big firm believer in the whole run, hide, fight thing. As much as we want to stop evil, it's not going to just blanketly happen overnight. We're going to have to contain it. We're going to have to deal with it straight ahead if we have to. Yeah, those are great comments, Brandon, because I agree with all of them. And that's not what makes them great, but they're great comments nonetheless, because you really hit the nail on the head with regard to some of the things that continue to bubble up. The school resource officers, always a challenge. Having an armed officer in the school has a lot of benefits. If it's the right officer and the officer is trained, not only just to respond to an active shooter, but to also engage with the students and make the students develop positive relationships with law enforcement and know how to call and who to call. And it creates an opportunity for students to learn to respect law enforcement right from an early age and for law enforcement to be part of the community instead of somebody you call when the shit hits the fan. And we'll see about the doors. I mean, you know, I'm a big doors person, doors and locks, doors and locks, doors and locks. I say that all the time. But, you know, we have thousands and thousands and thousands of doors, hundreds of millions of doors in schools in the United States. And they're all different configurations. And, you know, how a door can be modified and adjusted also has to be approved through the fire department and through building codes. It's very complicated. It's not just a question of, you know, let's just slap a bunch of new doors on buildings and everything's okay. So it's not just one solution. Obviously, this has just been a horrifically tragic incident and one that, you know, we continue to see. But is there any hope that you both take away from this incident that gives you, you know, 
a little glimmer of that humanity to come through the dark. As far as just our agencies in general, that's that's the biggest thing. Dispatch knocked it out of the park. We all did everything like we every single person that was there that they had some sort of a role is is big or small. It helped get this thing handled. The police department, obviously, their response was amazing. It was overwhelming how they cleared out the building and then everything afterwards. I mean, that that's one of the things that a lot of people don't know about. In Nashville, we've started having the counselors that are riding with a few police officers to try to handle suicidal or mental people or something like that. They were all called over the scene to try to help with the children that were there and had to deal with all that. The fire department's role, you know, they were there staging, waiting for the police to clear the building. And we actually have in Nashville, our SRT, the special response teams, they have a role where the fire department actually has paramedics that will go in if they're there on time. They'll go in with the police and they'll start tending to victims right then and there. This one, I don't think they got there quite in enough time. I mean, they had to rush in to get the, the shooter taken care of. But if they all showed up at the same time, they have plans to where the fire department would even go in with the police, the victims, they were transported to the hospital, the emergency workers there, even that they were probably tasked with an impossible job. I mean, these people were unfortunately probably going to pass away and they were still trying to save them, you know, everything like that. So everybody top down did a great job and it, and it shows that it, God forbid something like this happens again in Nashville, that we know how to take care of it. You know, I would just add that the opportunity to see the body camera footage, I think really informs civilians about the urgency of their information that every second really counts. Because I think the public wants to help stop the killing and we have to help continue to give them the tools to do that. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Brain, and we really appreciate it. Oh yeah, thank you for having me on. Can you remind our listeners where they can find you and all your fabulous Music City 911-ness? You can actually find me on any podcast app, Music City 911, or if you want to just come to my website, musiccity911.com, that'll get you the right place. You can hear everything and um, now putting episodes on YouTube as well. So they'll be on there. Sultry tones with a sultry face then. <laughs> Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, 
please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it because it will happen and it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it.